0: Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, ScriptsAndScribes.com. But first, we welcome to the show a literary manager and producer who represents prominent authors, screenwriters, directors, illustrators, and publishers, and specializes in books and graphic novel adaptations, negotiating deals for print, film, television, stage, video games, and new media. He's a graduate of Vassar College with his master's in film from NYU and a PhD in psychoanalysis and film from Emory University. And he spent the past 10 years working at the Gotham Group with clients that include numerous New York Times bestselling authors and Annie, Emmy, Oscar, Caldecott and Newberry Award winners. We Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Eddie Gamera. Thanks for joining us today, Eddie.
1: Hey, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, you are actually a great person to have on our podcast because... you As we were discussing, you cover many of the areas that our listeners, our readers aspire to in terms of books, publishing, authors, film, television, comic books, you name it. You represent and cover it, which is great.
1: (laughs) Um, Jack of all trades, master of none.
0: Well, I'm probably a master of many trades, which is great for us because you definitely (laughs) uh, I've read a lot of your other interviews and, and kept up with you. So I think that that's, uh, it's, it's great to have you on the show. You definitely, I think, are gonna be a, a huge resource for a lot of our uh, listeners. But first, Excellent. we'd normally like to do is start off with your background. You started off uh, at Vassar with a degree in psychology, then studied film at NYU and at uh, Emory. But how did you get started in the industry and uh, what got you into representation specifically?
1: Sure, I actually worked in the industry while I was getting a master's at NYU. Hmm. Uh, to help pay for my education, I worked a full-time job at Nickelodeon Home Video back mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. Uh, this is at a time when uh, Nickelodeon was doing such successful shows as Pete and Pete and Rugrats, and we were doing home video versions um, of those shows. Uh, because the full-time job led to me missing a lot of my night classes at NYU, mm-hmm. I actually uh, switched over to Viacom Litigation, which was fascinating. Not to say that home video wasn't fascinating, but Viacom litigation was a really interesting way into corporate entertainment. Um, you know, to work for uh, the litigation department as a sort of pseudo paralegal, I would be doing discovery, a legal term. You know, looking up uh, documents that are relevant to a particular case. I was doing discovery, going through executives' files, pulling files that were relevant to a case, including some of the Redstone. Mm-hmm. Uh, going into his office and rifling through his desk.
2: Wow. Um,
1: but, but this is also a time in Viacom's uh, history where there were some several major mergers and acquisitions and sales. So, for example, Viacom, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, was selling Madison Square Garden and also acquiring Blockbuster. And to see from that macro-level view, that 45th-floor executive suite perspective, how entertainment works, was completely eye-opening, especially when I was doing that by day. But by night, I was studying Kubrick and Hitchcock and Scorsese and uh, Lubitsch, you know, Mm -hmm. the kind of classic ivory tower film education that you would get studying film history and theory. So I got the sort of, you know, inside the business perspective, complementing the inside the uh, academia perspective, and I always thought, wow, you know, these things are so far afield from one another, I'm really privileged and lucky to, to be able to get both of those perspectives simultaneously,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but I ended up leaving New York uh, and pursuing academia uh, completely, and I did a PhD and was a, a visiting assistant professor at Emory, and I got to teach in an interdisciplinary program, so I taught art history and American uh American Studies, um, anthropology, psychology, sociology, mythology. Uh, the courses that I taught were interdisciplinary and in their in their structure, but that would cover topics like uh, one class I taught was called Fantasy Fairy Tales and Folklore. Mm-hmm. And in that class, you know, we would read the Greek mythology, we would read Egyptian mythology, we would watch Disney princess movies, we'd watch Miyazaki, we'd watch Star Wars, I would show David Lynch movies. Um, you know, it was it was uh, you know a way of combining sort of the academic stuff with pop culture. Right. Um, and uh, and so also made short films, wrote little scripts while I was in NYU and while I was at Emory. So always trying to kind of keep the creative spirit as, uh, alive as well. But I came to um, a decision to leave academia because I knew tenure track jobs were becoming fewer and fewer, and I did not want to become an academic nomad. Like many of my peers, who bounce from school to school, state to state, getting you know freelance adjunct jobs with terrible pay and terrible benefits, <laughs> right. uh, I said I just want to go back into the entertainment industry, and I was torn: Do I go to New York or do I go to LA? You know, I'd been in New York, I'd been in Times Square, I had my own office on the 44th floor, I could see Pennsylvania, um, getting a good salary, but I thought, you know, that that is so far removed from the actual filmmaking process, the film production process, the TV production process, um, let me go where the action's at. So I drove cross-country, packed up my Toyota Camry, had no job, had no apartment, uh, had a lead on an apartment, um, mm-hmm. which fortunately I got when I arrived, depleted all my savings, and just uh, did a ton of informational meetings with everybody I knew, everybody that they knew, and everybody that those people knew, until so I ended up getting a job at a company called Alloy. Mm-hmm. Back then, known as 17th Street Productions, which was a book packager. Mm -hmm. And a book packaging company is a very unique kind of entity. A book packaging company is a company that comes up with the stories so that Mm. the company itself, not the author, holds the copyright. I see. So if the company holds the copyright, not the author the company can leverage that copyright into a better negotiation position to become producers, to get better definitions, better back-ends, better financial deals, etc., right. etc. et cetera. Very, very clever model.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I learned a lot while there. But the great thing about a book packaging company is that it's the media equivalent of an interdisciplinary program
2: mm-hmm.
1: because you're doing film, TV, books uh, simultaneously. And so you have to train your brain to think across platforms across industries and every industry like every academic department has its own lexicon has its own rules has its own trends um, but when you take a step back and you're doing a job that's sort of a macro level job where you get to learn the different industries just like i learned the different, the different disciplines um, it get, actually gives you a really interesting you know perspective on how this uh, business can work and how storytelling can take place across platforms across media in some really innovative ways i worked with them for about a year and then my best friend uh, introduced me to the Gotham group. They were looking for an assistant at Gotham. And even though I had a PhD, was 30 years old, um, and had been an assistant many times before, you know, started my life again as an assistant and uh, just worked my way up the food chain. So I've been here as of June 21st, 10 years.
0: Now, you're a literary manager. And the, the term literary has different connotations in the world of film. TV entertainment and publishing. In other Mm -hmm. words, a literary agent in the publishing world represents books and authors, and in the film TV world, a literary agent or literary manager represents screenwriters and directors, filmmakers. In the TV and film entertainment world, authors are represented by book agents at the big agencies. Can you Mm -hmm. describe a little how the literary agents in the publishing world interface with literary agents and literary managers like yourself in Hollywood to get? material, books and things developed into film and TV properties?
1: Sure. So think about it like this. Uh, Point A on the chart is me. I'm on Mm -hmm. the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Point B is the book agent on the East Coast. The book agent on the East Coast, and this is grossly reductionistic, obviously, but this is just to keep it simple.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: The book agent on the East Coast sells a book to a publisher. That's the book agent or the literary agent in New York. The book agent, if they're worth their salt, only grants the publisher the right to publish the book, Mm -hmm. but retains all the other subsidiary and ancillary rights, live stage, film and TV, etc., etc., But because book agents know New York really well, or they know London really well, they know publishing really well, Mm -hmm. Uh, very few are trained in the film and TV world. They don't have that lexicon. They don't speak the language of Hollywood. They also don't have the Rolodex of Connections. Mm -hmm. They don't have the market intelligence. So the book agent, point B, points back to the West Coast, point A, to people like me. And book agents rely on either book-to-film agents at CAA, UTA, APA, Gersh, whatever, mm-hmm. or they rely on managers, literary managers like me,
2: mm-hmm. and there's
1: a handful of others. There's basically 15 people in Los Angeles who kind of do what I do to this degree,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and you know we've all kind of carved out niches for ourselves. I happen to work in children's publishing mostly, mm-hmm. but I represent adult authors in adult fiction, adult nonfiction, memoir. Um, all sorts of formats of books, um, but you know, in the kids' space, I'm very fortunate and blessed to be able to represent a lot of the sort of big names in the kids' book space. Now that said, I help advise the book agent
2: mm-hmm. as
1: to what is our market looking for, what is the, fil- the feature film world like, what is the TV world like, what's the new media space like, what do the deals look like, how do you dispose of your rights, how do you exploit your rights in ways that are beneficial and will amplify the value of the book rather than undermine the value of the book.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's about figuring out how to grow a brand, and the author could be a brand or the book could be a brand. Um, It's about figuring out how do you decide between doing a deal with a studio where you're giving them all of your rights in all formats, in all technologies, in all territories, in perpetuity, forever and ever, amen, for a sum of money or taking your intellectual property and trying to slice up the pie so that Mm -hmm. you can have a sticker deal, a plush doll deal, a web shorts deal, a comic book deal. And you begin to break up that story, that world, that character that you've created into an intellectual property pie where each type of right is a different slice. Mm -hmm. You want to create more revenue streams for yourself. You want to create more ownership. And hopefully build a brand, build a franchise on your own terms, rather than just signing over your baby to, uh, you know, Papa Disney or Mama Paramount.
0: Right. Now, for a a town like Hollywood that's bombarded with material and it's tough to get executives and producers to read more than a log line or coverage report, how hard is it to get them to read books and manuscripts uh, for consideration?
1: It depends. Mm -hmm. It depends on if you're in a competitive situation. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, we recently went out with a title where the author had adapted the book herself, Mm -hmm. but we we highly encouraged, in fact, I would dare say we required uh, executives to read the book first Uh, before we would give them the script.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Other times, yeah, you know, the the, the nature of the beast is scripts. This is a script-driven industry. Mm-hmm. 50% Fifty percent of all, you know, best picture winners are based off of books. You know, 22 of the top 25 box office best uh, box office uh, franchises are based off of comics or books. Mm-hmm. Um, so the underlying material, the source material, the book is of supreme value. But getting a director who's on set to try and read the book that could be his or her next movie is extremely difficult. It do not have time to sit through a 700-page book. So they need that synopsis. They need that coverage. They need that book report to at least get the idea. And the thing is, publishing is driven by voice, right? What's on the page? They want to know that the author has a voice and can deliver words on a page in a particular way that's going to impact their reader. Mm -hmm. Our industry is motion pictures, be it small screen or big screen, be it your phone or be it an IMAX. It's visual storytelling. So what matters for us is not the voice, but the vision, right. what guides the vision is the idea. And, and and this is where marketing comes into all of this, right? So Hollywood is really good at marketing. Publishers, not so good at marketing. Right. Hollywood wants to know, can I sell that idea? Can I sell that in 30 seconds? Can I sell it in 15 seconds? And so when you come in the room and you say Sharknado, right. it's a tornado of sharks, people are like, what the hell is that guy talking about? But like, it stimulates the brain. Mm-hmm right? It, right. It, it's something that, like, you get almost immediately, Jaws.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, it, it's the movie Taken. You pitch the entire movie in four words. I want my daughter back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I want my daughter back. Five words. <laughs>
2: um,
1: you know, but, but the long and short of it is, you know, you don't need to read the whole book to get the big idea, Right. to know what the world is, to know what the spectacle is. You do need to read the book to get a sense of Obviously the plot and the character arc and the hero's journey and all of those things. But all of that can be condensed. The other thing that's important to note is that fiction particularly is very interior. Fiction writing, novels are very interior. You're allowed to go into a character's head in a way that it's really hard to do in film and television. You can use devices like voiceover, but you know that can be tricky. You can do flashbacks, but that can be tricky it's hard to have a completely interior movie. We've seen them before, but that's not commercial studio storytelling. That's not classic American film storytelling. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, there's big, big differences and you always want everyone on the production side to read the book. And you know, I told one author of mine, Hey, this giant A-list director who's, been responsible for some of the biggest successes in the history of the last 40 years of film read your book I was super excited
2: because mm-hmm. you got
1: the guy to read the book and the author said well if he's gonna make a movie out of my book you better fucking read the book you know that's that's kind of the mentality sure so it is tough but you know it, we do always encourage people to go to the source read the source know the source know the author get the voice, Pick up details. I find that screenwriters are actually usually really good about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, directors, perhaps. Perhaps a little bit less so. Executives, perhaps even a little bit less so. Right. But I know many, 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 many very book-savvy producers, development execs, agents. Um, you know, there are many very leaderly people out here, but that's not the norm.
0: Right. And you had mentioned that uh, you had a, a client, uh, an author, who actually wrote the script, the screenplay for uh, his or her book, although that's not the norm. But if you had to sort of break it down in sort of the simplest terms possible, what sort of advice would you give to authors about screenwriting and vice versa, you know, to screenwriters about writing that novel?
1: Sure. The first thing is, are you already under contractual obligation to deliver another book? In other words, Mm -hmm. I don't want the book agent to ever be mad at me for encouraging an author to not deliver the next book that they're under contract to deliver. I don't want Hollywood and screenwriting to be a distraction for an author whose day-to-day job, whose primary means of income, is to, to write and sell books. Right. Screenwriting is a whole separate business. It's a whole separate industry. It has a different lexicon, different tropes, trends, all of these things. It's very different. Novels, you know, you can say... You can describe one scene in five whole pages. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's if you kind of if you did the word count, you know it's two thousand words to describe a simple thought. Mm-hmm. In film, it's like writing haiku.
2: <laughs>
1: you have to convey the most powerful image and the most powerful emotion, and convey narrative information in as few syllables as possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Scripts are mostly white, and, and you know than black. Right. Books are mostly black.
2: Mm -hmm. not white.
1: So learning how to be that kind of efficient storyteller is extremely difficult for many people. The other thing is most novelists were not trained in that kind of classic Hollywood three-act structure. That's the formula for many Hollywood movies. But I will say many, many authors with whom I I speak, many, many book agents with whom I speak, many, many editors with whom I speak are now reading Save the Cat. Mm. When I look at the publishing deals announced on publishing websites or publishing trades like Publishers Weekly, the pitches for these books are no longer it's Fallinger meets Hemingway. It's now it's Potter meets Austin Land. You know, Mm -hmm. so even the, 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 the marketing language of publishers are sort of taking on a filmic tone. But for authors specifically, Number one, do you have the time? Number two, do you have the interest in developing that skill set? Because not everyone can do it. It's a very different type of writing. Mm -hmm. Do you want to take classes? Do you want to read Save the Cat? Do you want to read 100 script samples of the top movies ever produced? Do you want to do that homework? Or do you just want to write another book? Mm -hmm. Now, there are certain practical, legal, and creative benefits to adapting your own book. One, you control the books, you can do whatever you want with it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You can get a first position for screenwriter credit
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? because you've written the first draft, you've laid the foundation down for what the movie would be um, and that can be very helpful. There's a financial benefit which is that you know even though you may have written the adaptation on your own free time, if your project gets sold, the studio or the network is probably going to have to pay for that script as well. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to pay you a little extra money. so you know, it's potentially a worthwhile investment. There are some authors who are entranced by the idea of adapting or becoming screenwriters, Um, and not even adapting stuff, just becoming screenwriters. There are many others who don't care at all, you know. Um, It's a totally personal question uh, where you ask yourself as a creative professional, can I do this? Do I want to do this? Should I do this? And my job is to help them fulfill, you know, their goals, creatively and professionally, and to give them the guidance to make the right kind of decision at the right time.
0: Right. Now, are there any ways you can think of for an author to increase the appeal of their completed novel for film and TV producers and executives? You know, For example, what if an author is like trying to figure out what they want to write, what their next book should be with an eye on film and TV development for those write authors, those novelists who want to either toe the line and work in both worlds or make that transition, are there any genres, uh, settings, tropes, stories, plot types, character archetypes that are particularly played out or that tend to be more uh, interesting to producers and executives?
1: Well, I mean, certainly there are trends in both Hollywood and in publishing. And, you know, wise people will always say, never write toward the trend. Sure. Write the story you want to write. Mm Mm-hmm. I, however, am not a wise person. (laughs) I tell people, I tell people, write something you can sell. Mm -hmm. Write the story you want to tell, but also write something that can sell. Right. But how do you know what can sell? Well, you can rely on people like me who can tell you what the market is looking for. But at the same time, I tell all my clients who ask this exact question I say, go watch movies, Mm -hmm. go to the theater. Go look at the newspaper and look at what's playing at the multiplex, what's playing at the art house cinema. Go turn on your television, watch television, see what's successful, what what are getting high ratings, Um, and uh, you know, educate yourself about what our market looks like. There are plenty of really, really talented uh, authors with whom I work, and they'll pitch me a book, and they'll say, "Oh, this is going to make a great movie," and I'll say, "Okay, that movie was made three years ago." Right. Say, "Ah, damn." Or they'll say, oh, this book is going to make a great movie. And I'll say, how many movies do you see that involve the forbidden love affair of a Native American woman in the 1700s with a French fur trapper? Right. One every 10 years? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, and and, and that book happened to be a bestseller. Mm -hmm. You know, what works in our business right now, and over the last 20 years, typically happens to be a certain kind of movie. I seem to remember someone interviewed Will Smith, and he said, wow, well, you have an incredible track record of success choosing roles in all these amazing big movies, Independence Day, Men in Black, and, you know, what are you looking for? He said, well, I looked at the box office successes, Star Wars, Pirates of the Caribbean, Men in Black, they, they all share a certain kind of big spectacle, big world, um, fun, heart, adventure, humor, uh, nothing too you know, violent, nothing too kiddy, you know, so that's how he made his decisions. Mm-hmm. So I'd say to an author, you know, you're going to have a higher degree of success if you happen to write a story that happened to have heart, humor, and heroics in equal measure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, right. That's going to you be a better shot than doing that very interior voice driven, lyrical, literate piece about a woman who lives by herself in the desert for 50 years and never talks to anybody except by letters. Right. Right. Not very cinematic. You know, which may be in a, it may be an amazing book,
3: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: but very hard to translate on the screen. Right. You know, how many young adult books are there where it's Oh, I feel I'm out of place. Oh, I want the boy to like me. Oh, he doesn't like me. Oh, he gets his comeuppance. Oh, now we're in love. We go to prom. Oh, big smooch. Like, where do you see that on television? Where do you see that in the movie theater? You you don't really. Right. And yet, publishers publish more of those kinds of books because that works with their market. You know, that's successful for them. That's the kind of stories that work for that readership in that space. Mm -hmm. Doesn't quite work on the side of the business. So. You have to think about those kinds of things, the age of the protagonist, the setting, how, how expensive it would be, um, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Right. Absolutely. Now, I know you were directly involved in getting Dashner's novel, The Maze Runner, made into a feature film at 20th Century Fox. Can you describe the process as sort of a case study of how the book became a film and how you were able to help push that along?
1: Sure, I can't give too many details. Sure. The so Fox would probably kill me. Um, <laughs> right. But, but what I can tell you is we started the process as James Dashner's um, book-to-film rep. Mm-hmm. And we did what we normally do with many projects, which is we submit the project to a bunch of producers in hopes that a producer likes the project and then takes it to a studio, and the studio likes the project and makes an offer. And, you know, you set up a project at a studio that way. In this case, um, you know, we had it in manuscript. We shared it with a, a bunch of producers, and we got a lot of passes. And I could not understand why. It was a great book, totally cinematic. Granted, it didn't have adult leads, but, you know, okay. People in Hollywood at that time were asking for Amblin movies. We want, like, Goonies,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: you'd pitch them Goonies. But they say, yeah, we can't do Goonies because it has no adult star. Right. So it was a bit of a catch-22 in our town. But the long and short of it was, it had a high concept. It was Lord of the Flies, but a sci-fi version, sci-fi Lord of the Flies. It had spectacle. It had great creatures, great visual effects, and it had this great twist at the end. And to me, it reminded me of Prime of the Apes. It reminded me of the Twilight Zone movies and shows that I love.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I thought, wow, this is really smart. But, but people passed, and it just drove us nuts. And I said to my boss, I can't believe that people can't get behind this. So we said, well, why don't we get behind it? And fortunately, there was uh, a book agent who thought there'd be a great opportunity for his author
2: mm-hmm.
1: and for him and for us. And the author felt similarly, and they gave us that chance, for which we're very grateful. And we had good luck and good fortune, and now we have a movie. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's no two movies take the same path which is why no one in this town knows anything. And that's why in this town, there are no rules because no two projects have the same development process, production process. We try and make the stuff like widgets. You know, that's a big joke of 30 Rock that that Jack Donaghy was the VP of microwaves and television. Right. You know, you can't can't make movies like you make refrigerators. You can't make television like you make microwaves. It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an unreliability to the process. So even though a case study like Maze may be illuminating, it doesn't actually help that much because it's it's just one unique example of a million, million examples, each with its own trajectory.
0: Right. Now, for authors who have been unable to get a novel published via the traditional publishing route, you know, with a big publishing company or even a small independent publisher, is self-publishing a legitimate option in terms of development? Um, or does that seriously diminish the book as an IP if a book... Or even if a book has poor sales figures from a publisher, how does that affect the difficulty in developing it into a film-TV property?
1: Sure. I'll answer the second half first because it's more common an issue. Sure. So a book that is published by a traditional publisher, Mm -hmm. right, uh, when it is about to come out, so let's talk about the life cycle of a book. If it's Mm -hmm. about to come out, producers and development execs and studio execs and financiers and agents will say, okay, it's about to come out. What's the print run? How many books are they going to print? Mm-hmm. Once the book comes out, they're going to say, great, how many has it sold? Okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: My job is to help translate the metrics of success between the two industries. So, for example, an editor once told me, if I'm selling 3,000 copies of a graphic novel, I'm doing pretty well. Right. Another editor once told me, if I'm selling 25,000 copies of a picture book, that's a huge hit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if I tell the head of Fox or the senior vice president of Paramount that this graphic novel is a huge success and it only sold three thousand copies, right? They're going to look at me and think I'm crazy, right? Because their metrics of success are very different, okay? Yeah. So sometimes the numbers can hurt, sometimes they can help. Sometimes you can pad them, sometimes you can't. Right. What I have found to be more important than sales figures is, as I mentioned earlier, the idea. What's the idea? So, for example, we sold uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Beatballs to Sony. The mm-hmm. movie bears very little resemblance to the original book, but the idea was spectacular and so unique and so visual, right? That right. was a modern classic book. was mm-hmm. mm-hmm. another book that we sold to another studio um, that was basically out of print, had sold very few copies, but the idea behind it was so good we got into a bidding war between two studios, each having their own A-list director vying to get this project. Uh-huh. So, sales figures in those two cases, you know, they mattered to some degree. They didn't matter, you know, in, in another instance. Mm-hmm. Hollywood's always looking for brands. They want pre-aware properties. They want the easy marketing, which is why they keep churning out more superhero things and and uh, uh, board game movies and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. That's why you have a movie that becomes a Broadway show that becomes a movie again. Right. Hairspray. Sure. It's it's brand value. It's marketing, easy marketing,
2: okay? Mm -hmm.
1: So if I can walk in and say, this book has sold 10 million copies, they may say, awesome, except it's not castable. Uh, It's uh, one demographic or one quadrant, and um, it's too expensive. You know, when we actually try and budget what it would look like on this, as, a, as a film, yeah, it's too much money.
2: Mm-hmm. They won't do
1: it, you right. know? even though it has huge sales figures. The numbers, yeah, the numbers are helpful, but not always. To your point about self-publishing, mm-hmm. I'm a 20th century guy. I'm born in 1972. I come from a generation, one of the last generations, that still finds the cachet of saying at a cocktail party, "Oh, I'm published by Hachette," right. to be a worthwhile talking point. What matters more and more these days is the proof that you are successful. However, you can prove that. Some people, some authors, for example, have an incredible dialogue with their readers through social media. Right. When they can bring to the table not that they sold 10 million copies, but that they have 10 million followers, mm-hmm. that matters. You look at things like Annoying Orange at or Cartoon Network, you look right. at things like Awesomeness TV being bought by DreamWorks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: the social media platforms have numbers they have direct metrics of success that have some kind of meaning for these companies Right. Um, books books aren't quite the same in that sense but to the point about self-publishing you can go and self-publish and you can launch a film or TV franchise off of a self-published book but more often than not your potential producing partners or the studio partners are going to say Great idea, but how many units has it sold? How many followers right. do you have on your Facebook page? Right. So it's not just the idea; it's also the fan base that you bring to the table. Um, and that's true of books like Wool. That's true of books like my client Cassandra Clare's Mortal Instruments. She had she's incredibly savvy about developing a relationship, a genuine relationship with her readers. Right. And there's an intimacy between author and reader. Um, be it it publishing through Simon & Schuster or self-publishing, either way. What matters is that the author has a direct line of communication with their readers. Showrunners are beginning to develop that. Film directors are beginning to develop that. But that's not how they interact with their audience. Authors have that kind of intimacy. It's very enviable. So you can do that through self-publishing or you can do that through a traditional deal with a traditional publishing house, but the bottom line is still the same. Sales right. figures matter to some degree, yes, but also it's about the relationship with the audience.
0: Gotcha. Now, is selling a graphic novel or comic book for film and TV development, is, that, is it different than selling a
1: book? Well, graphic novels are sometimes considered easier to sell because the graphic novels, like the storyboarded movie, right. And graphic novels, like picture books, are visual stories. They're visual first and foremost, and our industry is filled with people who are trained to think visually first. So having a graphic novel or a picture book, you know, can certainly be helpful um, in getting a development exec's mind around a project and helping them see the project in a way that they might not see a project if it's a 700-page novel. Right. That said, um, your question is pitching it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people have created comics just for the pitch. Sure. Other people, some of our clients, they just want to be really great storytellers in the medium of graphic novels, and that's their end goal. The end goal isn't to sell a film or, or a TV show. Their end goal is to be great graphic novel storytellers.
3: Right, right. And if you
1: happen to sell it for film and television, if you happen to have that success, hey, great. That's the cherry on the icing on the cake. But the cake itself is having told a great story as a graphic novelist. Right, right. The one, the one little bit of inside information that I think your readers and listeners could benefit from learning is that most comic book publishers, view themselves as IT libraries, Mm -hmm. not comic book publishers. Printing physical comics is a loss leader business. It's very hard to make a profit on print comics. Digital comics, obviously growing, expanding. Comixology just got bought by Amazon. Huge deal. Hooray. Awesome. Puts me on my iPad. I get to read books I never would have seen because I wasn't at the comic book store. That's great. Get more comic book readers. That's awesome. But, All of those publishers, for the most part, are really hoping for uh, the kind of growth that Marvel and DC had. They want to be acquired by a Marvel or DC. They want to grow into becoming a success like a dark horse and then leverage that IP library into becoming producers of film and television because if you hit it big in those industries, you're making really good money, probably better money than you would have made if you had just done comic books. Right, right. So all of these publishers are viewing stories as potential film and TV, although there are some publishers that just want to tell really amazing stories in the comic book format or in the graphic novel format and aren't explicitly trying to just sell the next big superhero movie. Right. But all of these publishers have reps at the agencies. Many of them have a producer on staff. You know, it's it's all integrated now. It's all integrated.
0: Right. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about animation because I know you have some expertise in that field as well. And feature animation screenplays are difficult to sell, especially since the majority of them are developed in-house at various studios or they're already based on successful, established IPs. Does the same ring true for television animation? Is there a market for original animated TV pilots?
1: Yes and no. I think the way I would rephrase that is every major player in the TV animation space
2: mm-hmm.
1: has some version of an incubator, a laboratory, a testing ground. All of them are basically synonymous with a digital shorts initiative. What they want to do is from Fox to Disney to Nickelodeon to Cartoon Network to Amazon, you know, everyone wants to find good new talent and great new stories. And where are they going to find some of those things? But they're going to find them from established creators with track records of success, but those people are expensive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They're expensive because they have a track record of success. They've done really well. They've gotten good ratings. Right. you have had good ad sales, good merchandising sales, etc. But you can't always you know, pay the big buck people all the time. So you've got to find the people who are going to take the little bucks. Where do you find those people? Where do you cultivate that new generation of talent? Where do you discover the next great Spongebob creator? You find them by paying them a pittance small amount of money but put them as part of a shorts program and the shorts program then allows people to develop a proof of concept it may not be a pilot episode but at least Mm -hmm. it's a proof of concept and if the proof of concept is really good then you're in a really good position to maybe get a a, a pilot ordered or even go to series Um, so people don't want to spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars necessarily developing developing A Bible, and then writing a pilot script, and then shooting an animatic, and then shooting a pilot episode, and then testing a pilot, and then deciding if they're going to go to series. If there's already a web series on online that has a track record of success, let's get that guy, pay him a little bit of money to develop a new idea, and that's how we test them by doing shorts.
0: Right. Um,
1: So it's a little, it's it's not really pilots per se, but it's it's more uh, the short mode, the short form of storytelling.
0: So to get into one of these uh talent incubators so to speak or get involved in something like that do they have to be animators as well in other words if a writer wanted to work in animation but they had no sort of art skills at all but they wanted to write for animated features or TV is and I know that writing uh animation scripts aren't necessarily the way in but I mean as a writing sample is that a good way to sort of break in writing animation scripts, or is traditional live action comedy better, or children's screenplays, or is it just so well, difficult unless you have an art background?
1: All right, so there's a lot of stuff in those questions, and these are really in, in, insightful questions, really important questions. Right. First thing, there's definitely a bias towards artists over writers in animation.
3: Mm-hmm. Because
1: again, it's visual storytelling.
3: Sure.
1: In the history of animation, particularly in series, a lot of these uh, shows were gag-driven, right? A lot of sight gags, a lot of pratfalls. Mm-hmm. Um, not really complicated character evolution. You know, Homer and Bart barely have evolved over 20 years, right? Right. Um, you know, so it's not like you're, you're telling the Sopranos in animation. You're not right, telling right. the Wire in animation. Like, like me, the characters very often don't change. So what you're trying to create is, you know, just a series of sight gags. So there's two different kinds of animated shows. Traditionally, there's board-driven shows, shows that are driven by the storyboard, and then there's script-driven shows, and you know some shows are one, some shows are the other. There is right now certainly a bias towards artist-driven, board-driven shows. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're a writer, how do you break into animation? Well, you you have an amazing sample, and more often than not, it's going to be comedic, and that comedic sample can either be a play a feature film script that's live action, a feature film script that's animation, it could be a series of web shorts that you wrote. It doesn't really matter. Mostly in animation, you're looking for humor. And if your writing's funny and it has a kind of visual sensibility to it, um, then you're probably going to do okay. Some shows are action shows, right? So you have like Marvel and DC that have a lot of the superhero shows. Um, Even some of those keep comedic. But... For the shows that are straight action instead of Falls, you have fight scenes. Right. So again, you know, you have to think visually and write visually. Um, and you can have a little bit of pathos and a little bit of character development and things like that. Of course, um, good stories always have that. But uh, but yeah, just to break in, I would say comedy, comedy, comedy. You know, and whatever the source is, doesn't matter. It just has to be funny.
0: Right. Right. Now, um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, especially because we have so many uh, aspiring screenwriters, authors, comic book writers, and as a top literary manager, and your clients do include all of the above, you must get a ton of submissions and referrals, probably many, many, many uh, more than you uh, could ever hope to filter through. But what are some of the more unusual ways or places you've discovered clients, other than obviously submissions and referrals?
1: Um, interesting places where I've had I've met clients. I mean, in the traditional sense is, yes, absolutely, we are a referral-driven business. Legally, we cannot accept unsolicited submissions. We just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, we get emails and calls every day with unsolicited submissions. We get letters and you know, postcards with unsolicited submissions. We just have to throw them away. We can't even look at them. It's almost always referral, and a referral comes from an executive we work with, a lawyer, or an agent we work with, or from our own clients. In terms of interesting places, I'm trying to think where would be sort of some of the interesting places. I mean, when I first moved to Los Angeles,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I knew three people, and most of them were all from Vassar, where I went to undergrad. Right. And one of my friends from Vassar said, hey, there's this really great stage show that you should check out called Mortified. And she was a fan. She took me. I became a fan. I fell in love with the show. I would go every month. And I got promoted. And my friend, who knew the creator of the show, said, Hey, you know, the guy who created the show is looking for a manager. So I met with him. And we bonded over the Twilight Zone and our love of Rod Serling.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, and so I signed him. We ended up selling two books to Simon & Schuster, two uh, adult comedy anthologies to Simon & Schuster. Um, we sold... Uh, celebrity interview show to Sundance Channel where the creator of Mortified ended up interviewing people like you know Brian Cranston and Megan Mullally and um, who's the kid from Silver spoon's Rick uh, Schroeder Rick Schroeder you know um, So we did that. Uh, they recently did a documentary that's now on Netflix and it's doing huge business on Netflix. And this is a brand that's been around for about 11 years it's grown completely grassroots. Um, And and my relationship with it all started just because a friend of mine said, here's something I think you might have fun seeing. Not particularly unusual, but it came from a place of honest admiration and affection for that particular venture, for that particular experience, for that particular brand. Um, Some of the more unusual things, I mean, you know, you get pitched everywhere. Um, One of my clients, you know, got pitched while he was, Going under while getting dental surgery, <laughs> pushing him an idea.
2: Um,
1: okay. I was like, "How are you even expecting me to remember this?" Because I'm actually like getting laughing gas now. Um, you know that happens all the time. I, I can look out over the parking deck of my of our building, and I often park on the roof. And one day I saw that I had what looked like a piece of paper stuck on my windshield. And
2: mm-hmm. I thought to myself,
1: "Did I get a parking ticket?" Weird. So at the end of the day, I go downstairs and I. Take the piece of paper off of my windshield, and it turned out it wasn't a piece of paper, it was actually a script. Oh, gosh. And I thought to myself, how on God's earth did that person know to put the script on my windshield? That's a, That's a little kind
0: of creepy. creepy.
1: <laughs> right? That was a little creepy. So, you know, things like that do happen, and you just got to be careful.
0: Right, right. Now, we do have a couple reader questions that I wanted to throw your way. One of them you sort of answered, but uh, maybe you can go into a little more depth in terms of the angle that they're approaching it from. But it says, I've written an animated feature film screenplay. Agents seem to be reluctant to read these kinds of scripts because most of animation screenplays now are generated in-house. What can I do to get my script read?
1: Uh, A couple of simple answers. One, you can enter it into screenwriting competitions. Two, um, you can try to find people who work in the animation space, not agents per se, but people who work at the studios um, through networking events and building relationships. Um, You might consider not pitching it as a fully animated movie. In this day and age, one can argue, you know, is The Hobbit an animated movie? Mm -hmm, Is mm Spider-Man an animated movie? You know, Gravity is, is practically right. all the effects. So what is animated and what's not animated? You know That's a huge question in this industry. Mm-hmm. So most animation companies have what they call the animation imperative. Why does this particular story have to be animated? So the, to the person submitting that question, I would say back to them, why does this story have to be animated? Couldn't it be a live-action CG movie? And if that's the case, then you're suddenly now opening many, many more doors for yourself. Sure. So that's the answers.
0: Gotcha. Now here's another question. I finished my first novel and think it would make a great movie. Is this something the agent for my book would handle, or do I need a movie agent?
1: The book agent typically has a relationship with a film co-agent or a film co-rep, just like they have a relationship with a foreign rights rep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm book agents you know, work with a team of other people to specifically sell specific rights. right? Some book agencies have an in-house foreign rights agent, so they right. sell the book in Germany and Brazil and China. Some don't. Some have a third party that they contract with. Same thing with me. Uh, I work with many book agents, um, but some book agencies have their own person in-house. Many don't, so it totally depends. But, but you know, you always want your book agent and your film rep to really view themselves as a team, a team that's author centric and a team that's book centric, and going to try and find the best opportunities for that book and for that author. But you want them working in tandem.
0: Right. Now uh, we're nearing the end of your the work day, and I appreciate your time, but we don't want to keep you too much longer. But we do have a quick section we uh-huh. call Rapid Fire, which is just a few quick, fun questions. Uh The first being, your favorite rocker named Eddie, Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Money, or Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder? Eddie Vedder. Um, Your favorite fictional comic book city, Metropolis, Smallville, or Gotham City? Gotham City. And which fellow Vassar alum would you most like to have a beer with? Generation Kill writer Evan Wright, writer-director Noah Baumbach, or three-time
1: Oscar winner Meryl Streep? That's tough, because I've been at cocktail parties with Meryl at Vassar, and I just have never talked to her yet, Uh and I was two years younger than Noah Baumbach, so I used to see him in the editing suite at the film school, but I I never got to know him. Evan Wright, I don't know, but I do know Benjamin Bush, who's an actor who was on Generation Kill, and he had very good things to say about Evan, so I would say Evan, because I don't know him, but I have a way into him.
0: Very cool. (laughs) You seem to have a connection to the other two, but that's uh, that's pretty great. And Generation Kill was fantastic. I think that's... uh...
1: Oh, great show. Absolutely. Um,
0: And do you have any last thoughts or final advice for aspiring writers?
1: You know, I I, I think I said it before. You know, write the story you want to tell, but write the story that can sell. Know the market. Right. Familiarize yourself with the market. Know what's working, what's not working, what's selling, what's not selling. Granted, don't write to the trend because trends change. Mm -hmm. But know your industry, treat it like a job. You know, if you want to be a dilettante, that's great. Be a dilettante. You want to be in a, 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 you know, do a little sort of writing on the side. That's fine. If you want to be a writer, write like it's a job. Treat it like a job. Do your homework. Know the industry. Treat it professionally.
0: Right. Yeah, we could ask you questions all day, but I appreciate you coming on the show, Eddie. And you can follow Eddie on Facebook, Edward uh, Gamera. Uh, And of course, you can find us on Twitter at scriptscribe. There's no and in the middle there, just at ScriptScribes. And on Facebook, facebook facebook.com slash So thank you again, Eddie. I really, really appreciate your time.
1: Happy to do it, Kevin. I hope it's uh, been helpful and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to share what I've uh, learned over the last 10 years with uh, your readers and your listeners. Sounds like a great program. I'm really happy to be participating.
0: And uh, to all our listeners, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.